What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is Haus Amberg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah, I can get that from Canine Dynamics yep. if I'm in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one- Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home Train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting all over gallivanting. The <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and joining us all the way from Austin, Texas. Man, we've been trying to get on the show for a long time. We tried to do it in real life <laughs> when people could still travel. That's Mr. Dave Croyer. Thank you so much for coming on, Dave. You're welcome. Great to be here with you guys. Finally. <laughs> we've been shooting with each other for the last 45 minutes while we've been trying to get the Zoom to work. But we got there in the end. We're doing it. Yeah, it's really good to have you here, Dave. We tried to get you here live when you were in Australia a couple of times. I think you were with Nathan McCready, weren't you, at that stage? Yep. I was either with Nathan. Wait, Ernie's in Melbourne. Nathan's near Sydney, right? Yeah. 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 It was with Nathan. 
Yeah, I think it was about two and a half hours away where you were because I think you were down Barrel Way or something That's like right. that. That's mm. right. Yep. So we were desperately trying to make it happen and we knew we were going to get you on the show at one stage and nobody was banking on this wonderful virus being released onto the population. I think we thought at some stage you'll be back here and we'll get a chance to pull you live into the studio. But as it happens, we're all uh, in our own living rooms or basements or lofts or wherever Roof. you want to be. Rooftops, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, mate, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. There's great things we want to talk to you about. I think there's just a plethora of experience that you bring to the table and other interests as well, such as BMX riding. So we'll get into that as we travel along the Dave Croyer journey. So let me kick it off, Dave. You're super well known throughout the industry. We'd say on the top 10 of known international trainers, right? You travel, you do the circuit, the seminars, compete at a world level in a couple of different sports. You judge as well. Huge online following the Dave Croy TV, and I've consumed quite a lot of your stuff. You taught me. I, I got an opportunity to do a BH at really short notice. I didn't know the exact pattern for it when I got the opportunity to do it. <laughs> you probably don't know, but you taught me in detail. I've watched you. I watched your video of what a BH includes probably a hundred times because I had a couple of days to learn and memorize what it was. So I should thank you very, very much for giving me that opportunity. But let's go back a, a little bit. And how did we get to this point? How did you become a dog trainer? How did you become an international dog sport competitor and judge? Where did it all start for you? (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but before I did dogs, I was actually in the music industry. I have a master's degree in music education, believe it or not. Wow. And I was in the music industry from basically when I was 17 years old until around when I was 29, somewhere around there, I'm thinking around 1998, 1999. For whatever reason, it was not because that I wasn't making money. I was making quite a bit of money. I was teaching. I was on a lot of major tours with a lot of touring, different groups playing a lot of types of music. I decided for whatever reason, I wanted a change of career. They kind of say, you know, a lot of people go through two career changes in their life, Mm -hmm. right? And that point, I don't know why, I just wanted to do something different. Mind you, I had no other skill, none. (laughs) But during a lot of that time, I had a German Shepherd or two that I got from the Pound or the Humane Society or the Rescue. And I was always kind of good with dogs. My dogs were never trained. They just coincided really well with me in maybe a studio downtown apartment, right? So when I decided I wanted to get out of that industry of music, I'm like, well, I don't know anything else. I could go make hamburgers at the burger joint, or I could try my hand at professional dog training, whatever the hell that means, right? And we know that a professional dog trainer could mean a lot of different things, a lot of different things. So- Around 1999, I went to a dog training school in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was very interesting because I was still playing at bars and nightclubs at night while going to school during the day. And the teachers and everybody thought that I wasn't training and I wasn't studying, but really I was taking my dogs with me into nightclubs and pubs at night. I was doing my job as a musician, and when we had a break, I'd go out to the parking lot and train my dogs and do all my studying, finish up, come back at two, three in the morning and be up for five o'clock class, six o'clock class to go tracking every morning. 
when test day would come, I would completely blow everybody out of the water. And they're like, what the hell is with this guy? We never even see him, right? I've got to know the instructors very well, and they took a liking to me. And when I graduated, they referred me to a job down here in Texas that I took. And that's how the whole thing kind of started. (laughs) Yeah, right. I had no idea that you were a musician. Now Glenn's about to start yeah. asking you good questions. <laughs> I jumped on that straight away because I wanted to know exactly what was your musical instrument of choice. Well, I guess my business card, if you will, would say percussionist and drummer. But I do play piano. I play a little bit of guitar. I and mean, we had to play every a lot of things in college, right? I'm classically trained. I have an associate's degree in jazz performance. And it's funny because it took me... You know, I'm 51 years old. It took me probably till I was 40 years old or 40, 45 to really discover rock and roll, to be honest (laughs) with you. (laughs) And now I'm like all into like old classic rock and Americana rock and blues and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah. And you're in the right place for that, right? Like Texas has, Austin, Texas has a pretty awesome music scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's the music capital of the world. Really. Yeah. That's cool. So- that's a really interesting transition into dogs. I think that you're kind of an anomaly. I think that most dog trainers kind of end up that way because they have a problem dog, right? Certainly that's what happened with me. And most people, they sort of have you know an issue with the dog, not necessarily a big problem, but they have a dog already and they're, they're struggling with it. They can't right. find the support that they want, or maybe they do have a great trainer and they mentor under that trainer or whatever. That's say probably 90% of dog trainers, that's how they end up in the industry. The ones like you that go, I'm going to become a dog trainer and make that decision and go to school for it, you know, straight off the jump. I think that's pretty rare. What was it like at that school being new? It must be interesting for you to reflect back being. Uh, oh, my so God. It was now. I will never regret any of my time at that school, but the methods that we were learning weren't really great. And we had a lot of requirements with the dog, like we had to do two BHs, three forced retrieves, a bunch of AKC titles, tracking narcotics. And then that small time frame, and I didn't know anything much about training. I was just good with dogs, whatever that means, right? We had to use quite a bit of pressure, a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of pressure, and that may be fair pressure, right? You know, I look back at it now, and when I graduated from there and the dogs that I had when I was going to school there, when I graduated, I told those dogs, you never have to do anything again in your life, right? Because they had a hard go at it, you know, from a guy learning to become a dog trainer. But it was a great school. I'm really happy that I went. I learned about what is too much pressure when you went overboard. And I for sure did not learn what I know now there. But Mm -hmm. that being said, I'm grateful for it and the instructors there. It was a good place. It really was. The type of training probably was just typical of the era, right? A lot of compulsion-based sort of stuff. Yep. Um, but also you said you had to do a couple of BH and narcotics detection and that kind of stuff. How well did you think that sort of thing prepared you to enter the pet dog training market? And is that what you did when you finished that school? Like, did you go straight into pet dog training or was that more preparing yeah. you to work for an agency or something like that? At that school, we had to do everything. We had to do the behavior modification. We had to learn about reactive aggression. We had to learn about everything. But I liked that we had requirements because a BH says, well, you did it, right? Like you passed or you didn't pass. In AKC, novice or utility title. 
training your dog for narcotics, training your dog for tracking, an IGP back then called Shuchin One routine. You passed or you didn't pass, right? So I liked the requirements, but my intentions were to go into the pet dog market, companion dog training, but my passion was sport and working dogs and competition. I'm not a huge fan of saying names of dog training schools or, or places like that. Okay. But when I moved, when I came down to Texas, I took a job at a very big training facility. I'll say the name. It's now called Starmark. Okay. Back then it was called Triple Crown and they opened around 1999 and I jumped in around late 1999-2000. So I was there right from the beginning as a, um, an instructor. Well, mm -hmm. uh, training pet dogs. But the facility was very cool because it, it offered, you know, they had an arena that they'd rent out for agility and they had, you know, a Schutzen club and all this stuff. And it was very active in the sport world. We were constantly bringing in people for seminars and stuff like that. And that kind of opened the door for, wow, that's different. That lady's there. You know, a lot, I tell people in the IGP world, the Schutzen world or the ring sport world, my education didn't really come from IGP or Schutzen people. It came from a lot of it from the AKC women of the 80s. Right. Like the Terry Arnold, the Anne-Marie Silverton. That's where my mentors for competitive obedience. And I just, you know, I'd take a little bit here from this person. I'd go to a seminar from that person. And I, and it just turned into this thing. You know, Glenn, if you're a musician, think of it like you're taking things from everywhere and you turn it into your own at some point. If you hold on long enough, right? If you're in it for more than three years, it starts to turn into your own. So that's where I was until about 2005. And then I decided to start my own business. And that's where we kind of are now. Yeah, cool. I was doing competitive stuff right from the beginning. I was doing a lot agility, anything you can think competitive, I was doing from the beginning. I love that. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that I think it can be tricky when you say to people, who just want to train pet dogs. Yeah, you have to put this title on this dog. And some people get a lot of pushback against that, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that having some sort of objective standard to meet is really important. Yep. I talk about that kind of thing in, you know, in my old life in the army. I'm not a great swimmer. I, I'm not at all. Like I can swim fine, but I would never choose to go swimming. But because every year I had to pass a fitness test that included treading water for two minutes and then swimming 400 meters in all of my army gear. Like I had to train swimming and it pushed me to do something that I was outside of my comfort zone that I wouldn't have otherwise chosen to do and rounds you out better as a, as a person for that job. And I think that uh, it's the same exists in dog training that when there's an objective standard, that it means that you have to train to something that you perhaps don't like to train. And in my game of PSA, there's scenarios that I don't especially like the carjacking, yep. for example, yep. I, I get it. I know why it's there and I, I appreciate the scenario, but in Australia, just from the political situation, it's not ideal to be doing. And it, so I don't like it. It right. pushes me to, all right, well, I don't like this, but I have to train it this way. Right. Like I, because it would be so easy to say, oh, I don't do that and just say, I'm really good at this other stuff, but I don't do that. And you just gloss over what you're not good at and never challenge yourself. Right. So I agree with you wholeheartedly there. The other thing I, I wanted to sort of tease out a little bit, mate, was you said that with those dogs you had on your course, and I know we're a long time in the past here, you said that you were yeah. never going to make yeah. them do anything again or, or like <laughs> 
Was that, do you think that immediately following your course, you know, it was probably just typical of the time that it was more compulsion based and a little bit pressure based. Did you have a feeling that you wanted to go away from that instantly? Or was it that you didn't want to make those dogs do stuff so much afterwards? Or was it that you were thinking, I want to you know, lean towards being a little bit more motivational in my training? Was that what you meant? Or that you didn't want to make those dogs do stuff? Well, this is a very interesting and good conversation because nobody's ever asked me this stuff, right? When I went to that school, I didn't know anything about dog training, right? I had two, like we all started with two nice dogs that we loved. We don't even know what the hell we were doing. And I didn't know about pressure, right? Like I was like, whoa, a pinch collar or electric collar. And, you know, these were not strong German shepherds. They were just from the pound, you know, one was white, one was black. They were not even good breeding, but all I knew was I needed to do well at school. Okay. Whatever that took. And I didn't really know much better. And I just kept saying to the dogs and remember, I was not a great trainer. I didn't know what I was doing, but I got it done, you know? And I was like, we're going to get through this guys. And on the other side of this, then you don't have to do anything again. But the way I discovered there was another way, we had to do, you're familiar with what a send away is, right? Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. A send out. So we had to do one with our dog in the the Schutzen one routine, but we had to train another completely different dog to do a send away alone, just on its own on the field, right? Like you heal out and then tell the dog to go. And I didn't have enough time to train it using pressure. Like if I told you how we did the other dogs, you'd be like, oh my God, unbelievable. <laughs> so I, w- I, was u- I was using a black lab that was I was using to train my narcotics force. And he loved a toy, right? He loved a calm. So I'm like, okay, this send away has to be done in one week. I've not even started it. I took his Kong, I put him in a down and I walked to the end of the field. I walked back and then I told him to get it. And I'm like, holy shit. He went, ran down the field and got it. Right. So I just sat down there at the field alone in the middle of the dark, drinking a beer going, how in the hell can I make you do this in five days? I started to cut the Kong in half, smaller and smaller and smaller. And he did, you know, typical, whatever. And then on trial day, he thought maybe there was a tiny piece of rubber down there and he mm-hmm. did a send out. And I'm like, there's another way to this. Just let me get graduate from school and start my career. So I have money and then I'm going to explore. And not to mention when I was in college, I had a lot of classes on applied behavior and psychology. So I had not even really explored true operant conditioning with the dogs because I didn't have time to. It's like, you have to have this done, that done, that done, get that done. And it would just yank and crank, right? And I made it happen, but I didn't even have time to explore this whole other world of stuff. But that one lab that ran down there for a little piece of red rubber, a Kong cut in little pieces, I was like, there's another way. Let me get to the other side of this and start making money. And then I'm going to figure it out. That's awesome. Mm. And what was that journey like? Because then you know, was there a period where you were self-exploring with that? Or, you know, when you said that you were working at Triple Crown then and you were bringing yeah. in the seminars and that kind of stuff, I guess you had those early mentors. 
Yeah. So, you know, okay. When I started at Triple Crown or Starmark, I was a training director, but I was also training dogs and I would have 10, 20 dogs to train a day, Mm -hmm. not mine, pet dogs. Right. And I was still heavily using compulsion and maybe a year and a half into, I was still learning, going to seminars and experimenting with the clicker and more operant type of work with my performance dogs. But with the pet dogs, it was yank and crank. It was starting to get very dark in the training, mm-hmm. right? And I was starting to realize that when the owners came to pick up their dog, they were only operating out of fear. And they were only operating out of fear of, from me. When the owner had the leash, the dog knew they would not comply. because they didn't have to. Mm-hmm. The owner wouldn't do anything. So I started to think there has to be another side to this, right? So, you know, I had already been experimenting a lot with the clicker and using it with my performance dogs, using a lot of training more in drive, more food. So I told myself, okay, the next dog I get in for training, if it's a good student, and what I mean by that, like a good, nice golden retriever with really good food drive and everything, I've got him for four weeks. Let me see how far I can go only using reward-based training. And in two or three weeks, I'll look at it and then I can make a little bit pressure on him if I'm behind. And what I started to realize that if the dog wanted to offer behavior, it was more durable, much more durable with the client. That's not always the case with everything, but it started to open my eyes. And a lot of those dogs, the, the client dogs, is when I was learning really about clicker training. And I hate saying clicker training that using a clicker reward, yes. using a lot of reward, a high reward history, see how far I can get with the dog. And then I'll add pressure quickly at the end, right? Just a little bit. And that is kind of where it started to all shift, you know, and now we're talking 18 years later, 15 years later, my training is totally different. Some things are, are totally different. Some things have not changed, but. There's so much to unpack there. <laughs> so <laughs> it's one yeah. of the things that we actually spoke about it last week on the show. We're talking about that the performance dog people, a lot of people, your pet dog trainers, people who just are in a, a cookie cutter system often can find themselves thinking there's nothing for me there. Like I'm not going to compete in ring. I'm not going to show a dog in anything. I just fix people's problems with their dogs. I get them back to living happily with their dogs. And I think people who are new to the industry and are doing that and have a mentor that's taught them to do that, they often don't realize that that information has been maybe two or three hands, but it's come from the sport dog people, right? Because it's those, right. it's those techniques. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. Totally, right? And, and it's the trickle down and that's really common. That's how it all goes. And you've got people who are pushing for world titles and are looking to squeeze the maximum of motivation that they can. And they're being judged on the attitude of the dog and they're competing against people who are the best in the world. And they are in the battle lab every day, kind of thinking like, fuck, what can I do? That is just a bee's dick better than Dave because he's so good. And I need to just get that little bit better to have that competitive edge. 10, 15 years later, that technique that you're brainstorming, laying in bed at 2am in the morning, trying to figure out how to squeeze half a point out of your healing 
is now what average pet dog trainer is doing 15 years later. And it's just like, yeah. well, that's just how you do it. That's commonplace. That's how dog training goes. And I think a lot of people who are happy with what they're doing and they're happy with their mentor that's just teaching them that fix this problem, you know, get the dog working happily with the family, all that kind of stuff, maybe miss the opportunity to be at the cutting edge by paying attention to the people who are there and going like, yeah. even yeah. though I don't do Mondio, even though I don't do IGP. It's, I it's interesting. You're the first person that has ever, that I've done an interview with our podcast that has recognized that. And it's yeah. so important. Like you wouldn't believe, I told you early, I don't do many private lessons, but over the years I've done plenty. How many professional dog trainers come to me for private lessons, right? And I always tell them, look, you want to get better? Get into a sport. Yeah. Because then you're going to have a goal, right? Like, how do we say who's the best? Well, we have a world championship in IGP. We have the Cup of Americas in French Ring. We have the PSA NASA. Like, we do have competitions who says that person on that day is the best, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there is a way to met. And I'm not saying there are not people that don't compete that are not very good trainers, but there's something deemed to be learned or grasped from the sport dog because we have to. We can't stand still. No. If I want to beat, if I want to beat Ivan, if I want to beat Mike Deal, if I want to beat Yogi Zonk, if I want to beat Franz Hannes in Belgium, I better be on my game, right? Because totally. those guys aren't sleeping, right? They're, right. Not, they're not sleeping. <laughs> have you guys seen and, the movie The Devil Wears Prada? Yeah. I have yeah. not. Uh, there's I know, a, I know where you're going. Explain there, it, yeah. There's a classic scene in there where Meryl Streep and, and Hathaway, who are the two main characters are talking and Meryl Streep plays this horrendous fashion boss. Like she's this iconic internationally known fashion boss and she's talking with her team and Anne Hathaway plays this new intern that sort of gets this job. And apparently it's the job to die for because it, it could lead to so many other opportunities. And when Meryl Streep's talking to her team, she's talking about fashion and, you know, they're all going through all of these principles and Anne Hathaway sort of, she makes this like <laughs> snigger sort of noise. Everyone turns around and like they're horrified she's done this in the room. Meryl Streep then says to her, what are you finding so funny? She said, oh, I'm just laughing about that, the fact that you're going through all these colours and making a big deal of it. Meryl Streep proceeds to tear the absolute ass out of her and basically she says, well, you're sitting there in your bargain basement top that you've got some particular color on but did you know that this originated from the fashion industry and it came down all the way down it trickled down to your bargain basement top so primarily <laughs> what i'm doing it a great injustice because meryl streep does it so well and she's such a fantastic actor but primarily what she's saying is because of what the fashion industry created and all the work that they all put in and people might mock them and laugh them. It's because of them that everybody else has got all of these options in clothing and the different types of clothing and the different colors that came out, which originally came from high tier fashion and then trickled down into you know, Macy's right. and Sears and every, all of those places that sell average clothing. I kind of find that funny because it's in line with what Pat was talking about before. Like in the early days when I was in training, people used to mock a lot of the ANKC training, but still the ANKC training came and was derived from, you know, the military style of training originally, and then it turned into something competitive. And then, you know, yep. everybody borrowed pieces from each other. 
I often herald people like authors and early trainers, people like Conrad most, who kind of kickstarted the industry. You know, like he made it more pragmatic and he made it more widely known that you could actually start getting dogs to learn. You know, I think he was the one who really got people to start thinking about what operant conditioning was. And then it started to trickle down and then people started. Yeah. And then people started to think, well, like I can do more with my dog. I don't have to just have a dog that runs around and kills my chickens and so forth. Like I can actually do fun (laughs) stuff with it and have a livelihood with the dogs. Even that transition from when I started entering it into the 1990s into now, like it's a different beast. Like dog training then. Oh, 100%. Mm, there's a colleague that Pat and I know, a guy called Casey, who was a, he was a tiger trainer. There's often a running joke between him and I because back in the 90s, people that were training dogs were seen as like in certain industries were seen as gypsies and carnies. Even my grandmother said to me, this is totally beneath you. Whereas now dog training is a very considerable career. There are people that are doing and taking extremely expensive courses that they can then go off and be either ticketed or mentored by someone in the industry and then uh, open their own dog training school up and make a modest living out of it. So it really has been a considerable evolution. And I'm sure, Dave, that from the conversation that we're having, that you've seen this in your own timeline in training as well. You know, when we're talking about people that actually want to become dog trainers, right? It's important to understand the history of all this. Mm. And not only the history of dog trainers, you know, the history of classical conditioning, the history of opera conditioning, going back to the Breelands, going back to B.F. Skinner. But it's funny that we talk about this because back to the Devil Wears Prada, which I'll probably go watch now, but you're exactly right, Glenn. I can tell you almost when, okay, so... Even your normal companion pet dog trainer now is using a moment marker, right? Uh Either saying yes or okay. I can almost tell you when this started and where it came from in the sport Uh dog world. We can go back to 2000, 2001, 2002. We have Ivan, Michael Ellis, and myself. A lot of people don't realize this. Michael was Ivan's roommate in California. So that's where the influence from Michael came from, Ivan, right? And they're both using moment markers. One uses okay, one uses yes. I come on the scene from somewhere different. Now I'm using a clicker. That's where it started in the sport dog world. We can go back to early 2000s, right? Now we're 21 years later, right? Yeah. Everyone's using moment marker. Not everyone's using it correctly, but even the pet dog trainers. Everybody's saying yes, right? Yeah. This all came from somewhere. And the reality is we didn't design moment mark. We didn't, you know, we didn't come up with a bridge or a secondary reinforcer. That goes back to Skinner and the Breelands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think understanding the history and the trickle down effect is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even the term they use in that movie is avant-garde, right? So that the what is the avant-garde today, the cutting edge, what people will look at and not even fully understand will be commonplace in 10, 15, 20 years. That's 100% it. Yeah. When I started using a clicker with my Shutsun dogs, everybody like, and back then, by the way, I had long dreadlocks. You have to find <laughs> some old pictures. Like most people, now I'm completely bald, right? 
But I had the first eight years of my career. Well, I had long dreadlocks for most of my life. Everybody knew me as the long dreadlock hippie. I, I went to my first world championship. I'm looking at my walls right now. 2001, where was that? Slovenia. I was using a clicker with my dog. Terry Arnold was coaching me in obedience from the AKC world. People thought I was crazy. They're like, what the hell? This guy, he's a hippie. He's got dreadlocks. And I went to the world championship with my first dog. He actually went to three. Then when I got rid of that dog, everybody thought I was done. Nope, here came my second dog. And it was a mean dog, right? A strong dog. I go to three more world championships. That dog actually was the dog that broke me in. I was still using the clicker and everybody's like, wait a second. This is his second dog here. This is not a gimmick, right? Of course, I was still using pressure, but it was new in the world. I was training police dogs, doing my detection work using a clicker. Oh, the cops, they couldn't deal with it. They're like, what is a clicker, right? Yeah. Now, 21 <laughs> years later, marking or, you know, I'm, you don't have to use a clicker. I prefer to, but using a bridge or a secondary reinforcer, it's kind of normal status quo, right? Yes, yeah, it's like, commonplace, yeah. It would be normal. Like if you weren't using a, when I do a seminar, the first thing I say is, what is your secondary reinforcer? Is it yes or okay or a clicker? That's the first thing I want to know because everyone's using one now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And it's a funny one as well, because when we talk this way, I think it's also worth pointing out as well that things go in cycles. And so I think sometimes yep. we can overcorrect and we're all balanced trainers here. And truly balanced, like we'll use, we'll do whatever is necessary to get whatever's right for the dog, right? In that moment. Yep. And I think that sometimes- Without damaging the integrity. That's what I want to always say that. I never yeah. want to damage the integrity of the behavior of the animal. But Absolutely. I do use pressure. Yeah. And I think that's kind of interesting as well in that you probably never let go of that. Although maybe you, I don't know, you could fill us in because certainly me and Glenn have both tried it. I've tried being totally force-free for a little while and just didn't get the results that I was able to get. In fact, I started that way. That was, you know, but that's another story. But I think sometimes when this, the new stuff, like let's use that example of the clicker and, and clicker training to use that term, that was once so avant-garde and strange. And then it shows itself, it proves itself in efficacy. And then people can lean completely into that and abandon everything else and throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. essentially. And I think it's worth pointing out as well that, especially now we see a resurgence of it that a lot of, because I think becoming a balanced trainer is less of a dirty word now because it's really true balance. So, you know, it's not yank and crank. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, like balanced trainer for a little while meant, yep, I'm a yank and crank guy. Whereas now I think people are starting to understand like, no, I'm in it for the dog and I'm going to help communicate to the dog however is best suited or something along those lines. But I think we need to remember as well that everything old is often new again. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of the old techniques that people threw out because it's like, oh, I've got this new technique and it's like, well, that old one did work for a long time. And oh, it went a certain I'm constantly pulling things back from 20 years ago, constantly. Yeah. I'm like, don't forget that one thing did work 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. Like it. And we talk about the cycle. I can only speak for myself. I'm sure you guys went through this. I don't know how long you both have been involved in this. I'm going on 20 some years now, but every dog trainer normally will go through a cycle, right? Like I started out all compulsion. Mm -hmm. That was it. And then I went to the other side, quote, almost all positive. 
and I hate these terms, by the way. And I hope nobody, I hope no one ever even calls me a balance trainer. Everyone just knows what I do, right? I produce results. Very good. But then I went, I went one side too far, right? But it's taken me 20 years. Like, I hope I live a little bit longer, right? (laughs) Because right now I'm at the peak. Right now I'm at the peak of my training. And it's almost to a point where me and you and Glenn could have discussions all night long. We would have to all three to be together drinking some beers. Yep. And I could show you something and we'd go, that was fucking brilliant. Right. It's like to this point where it's almost unexplainable unless you're right there with me at that moment, you know, Mm -hmm. of course I can explain it in a theory thing, 100%. But now that's dangerous too, because of social media, which is creating a problem, I think, for what we all do, me, you, Glenn, dog trainers, and sport people, everybody wants information quickly. Mm-hmm. This has taken me 23 years, yep. right? Thousands of dogs around the world, 500 times, the things that I've seen, when I'm just my time in Australia, being there for four weeks, how many seminars did I do and how many people did I see in that one month? But now with social media, it's more, let's discuss it. Sometimes you got to live it. Dave, we, we did an episode not long ago called I Want It All Right Now. Primarily what you're speaking of is fundamentally what you would see, what Pat sees and what I see. Right. Because we're in lockdown and work has been stripped. I'm in the boarding kennel industry and we own you know quite a lot of boarding kennels in New South Wales. I've started to go back to doing some online coaching with people. And I get people who are, are very patient and they, they're sitting there and they're taking notes and they've been to other trainers. You know, some have done courses with Pat, some have done courses with Ivan and, and so on and so on and so on. So we're, we're having a chat, but more often than not, I'm getting people who they're coming on and they just want the secret source to everything right now. Right. And right. I have to explain to them, I said, look, this is a, an accumulation of knowledge. It's trial and error. It's going out there and finding that it'll work magnificently on one dog and it will fail terribly on another. And your yep. tutelage and pragmatic side of everything is going to come from a feel. It's going to come from experience. And I can't matrix upload you right now. Like I can't just sit you in a chair, put a needle in the back of your head and just load you up full of knowledge that me and, uh, and my mentors and all the people that I've sat with you have to actually break some eggs to make this omelet. Like it's going to take you yep. time. And I, I wish I could give it to you now. And you can see the disappointment in their face. Like it's almost like the blood runs out of their face. You know, they get so much agitation and anxiety over it. But I said, look, this is okay. You're still young. Like you've got youth yeah, on your side. You'll go through it. it, it exactly. It, especially if they're in their twenties. I didn't start until my thirties. Right. <laughs> but it takes time to develop. Right. Like, I now look at this kind of as an art form. I really do. Mm. You know, I, I just, um, it's funny. We just, with my current competition dog, I just finished, well, I'm in the middle of training my stand in motion. Now on my website, I probably have 10 videos, how to train a stand. Okay. But with this dog, I did something different. And if you're a subscriber of mine and you're on my private page, I show the progression. And everybody's like, well, what are you doing? How are you doing it? I'm like, guys, I'm making this up right now as I go. I've never done this before. All I'm doing is using my knowledge of applied behavior, how behavior works, 
and I'm making, and that's what I try to tell people. If you understand how applied learning works, applied theory, they don't need me. They don't need you, Glenn. They don't need Pat. I hope they still do, right? But <laughs> if you understand the laws of learning, have a drink and go train your dog. As long as you're not damaging the integrity, we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the people that always say, I got a new puppy for a PSA. Pat, tell me what to do. I don't want to ruin them. It's your first dog, you're going to ruin them. Absolutely. Or you're going you're gonna to mess some shit up. Let's just start messing some shit up right now, right? Let's just do some stuff. Don't be afraid to do stuff and experiment. We've all been there, guys. We, we know, right? But um, it's dangerous now with social media. And, and I'm, I admit that I have a social media presence. I make my living off that now. Really, media is what I do. Mm-hmm. But I try to always bring it back home and tell my people that follow me, listen, go out and do it. Don't always go, Dave, how do I fix this? Think about these things. Think about it like I think about it. I come into my office. I have a drink of some vodka and I go, let me think about how this is going to happen. And I go experiment and I go, well, that didn't work. You know, we all have bad days, but it's become a little bit of a problem with social media that people want information. They want it now. They want it fast and they want the quick fix. Mm. 22 years into this, I'm telling, you know, being poor, being broke, being almost divorced five times. And it was a long road. Most people don't realize that what they're watching when they watch the pretty stuff on social media these days, it's a hundred hours of five minute increments. Right. And that's the, yeah. the thing that everybody has to get in their mind is the way that I explain it when I'm teaching student groups is it's like the statue of David. Nobody ran up to that with a mallet, you know, the the giant bit of granite or whatever that was carved out of. They didn't hit it once and it just popped out of there. It was a lot of chipping. It was a lot of moving around. But what the artist did see it, and I believe it was Michelangelo who created David, wasn't it? Yeah. Sure was. So Michelangelo, when he was doing that, he had the vision of what this would look like. Like he could see it inside the piece of stone. Ah, good point. What you just said, he had the vision. Mm. But if people don't have the vision, they right. struggle. Yeah, that's it, right? So if you can't see it in there, you don't know what you're creating. You can't see the outcome. But he could see in that column of rock that he had there, he was looking at it and he said, I can see it. All I need to do is bring it out. Is do it. Yeah, is do it. do it. Glenn, that is, that is brilliant. That is brilliant that you just said that. That's a great way to look at it. Thanks, man. He could see what he wanted to do. Now he just said, okay, now I need, I don't know how long did it take him. To oh, do it, I, I'll, I'll find out. Many years, mm. right? But he didn't do it in a week. He didn't do it in two weeks. We know that. But he had the vision and he just said, now I just need the time to do it. And it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And that's how I look at everything. The key is I've got the vision, I've got the end thing in my head. And I now know it just takes time. Being a musician, Dave, have you seen the movie Whiplash? One of my favorites. Oh, man, that movie. I've seen it about 10 times. Yeah, yeah, I've times. watched it so many. Have you seen it, Pat, Whiplash? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it is. Great, that, that, great freaking movie. I, I can't stop watching that movie, and it's a very antagonizing movie, but a brilliant movie at the same time. If <laughs> if you're offended easy, you won't want to watch Whiplash because they're um, – <laughs> what's his name, J.K. Simmons? It's tough. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, J.K. Simmons. But that's how, that really, it brought it home because that's how it was for me. Mm. I had some teachers like that, and it really, you know, it kind of touched my heart. I'm like, but that's reality, kind of. 
the, totally. the thing that I loved about that movie was you're watching this person transform. J.K. Simmons is trying to make this young kid his progeny, like he's trying to create his own bird. That's what he's looking for. But the way he pushed him and drove him, but even if you watch the kid, like, again, he didn't become or start to become this amazing jazz drummer by sitting on his ass and and just wanting it all now. Like he had to suffer. Like you saw that kid bleeding, literally yep. bleeding, his hands coming apart, trying to get that perfect drumming timing and so forth. I know some people will watch that and I'll say, why did you make me watch this movie now? But you've got to look at the takeaway that you get from things like, I often talk about it. I'm a budding guitarist. I'm very, very amateur learning guitar. It's incredible how much your fingers suffer when you're learning the frets. Like my fingers yep. come away some nights, especially when I'm I'm really pushing through chords. There's nights where my fingers throb and I just have to sit them in an ice bath because they've, you know, like I've practiced so much and still sound terrible at the end of it. But I have to keep thinking this is going somewhere and I can hear myself getting better, but it's taking time and it's just got to take the time it takes. And it's the same thing with dog trainers. And this is the message yep. that I'm trying to give people is you will be terrible and you will suck. You know, that's part of the transition. Yes, you will. You'll be frustrated. You'll be angry. You'll be dis- so disappointed and despondent with yourself. And you've gone through it. Pat's gone through it. I've gone through it. All my mentors have gone through it. All your mentors have gone through yep. it. All Pat's mentors have gone through it. Everybody has gone through this trial by fire of having to learn. The only way that you're going to get somewhere is you have to go through this. And it's like the old Winston Churchill quote. When you're going through hell, keep going because there is an other side yep. to it and there's another side of it. You know, it's like negative reinforcement. There is another side of it where relief comes and you can finally see, oh, my God, it's like the sun came out. Suddenly the dog can hear me and suddenly I, it's like I can speak to the dog and the dog and I have this beautiful language between us. But before it was complete rubbish. That's what happens. And that the frustration that people are feeling now, the young people who are entering the industry or are coming a long ways but still finding it frustrating, there is relief, but there's no way you're going to get that relief unless you go through that right. hard work. This is a great conversation, by the way. I had to remind my followers the other day on our private page that there's a book, I believe, called The Talent Code, and there's another mm-hmm. book called Talent is Overrated. And the general consensus is it takes... 10,000 hours to master something, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when people see a quick video of me, something that looks spectacular, they have to realize, let's just say I've been doing it for 20, 21 years. If I practiced one hour a day, one hour, just one hour every day, I'm at my 10,000 hours. But let's be realistic. There were days that I were 16 hours, yeah, right? Yeah. Training dogs, learning this. And that's the problem with social media. They're seeing a glimpse of something. And I try to break it down, but it's like you have to realize that that didn't happen. Like there was a lot that went into that, you know, and a lot of maturity that went into that. Yeah. One of, you know, one of the things I really like to do is I think really deeply about how things came to be, right? Like how did we get into this situation in lots of different stuff. And on that, we, after we did that episode the other week on this, Glenn, I, you know, I thought about it even more. And I think social media is kind of an interesting thing in that you have been training dogs 20, 30 years, Dave, and there's that trajectory of like, you are always handy with a dog, but to get to where you are now is a, it's those 10,000 hours. But for someone coming into the industry, they haven't heard of you. And then they have, and you're amazing, right? And so 
for right. They don't know the in between piece. Yeah, from their perspective. <laughs> It was a sprint. It wasn't a re- it wasn't a marathon. It was a total sprint. You, you your existence was unknown to them until it was, and you are where you are now. And they're not right. tr- finding you with the dreadlocks and seeing that a, a different version <laughs> of you. They're seeing this, Dave, and it's the same. I had this conversation once with Bart. We're in the car. You know, when you have a really your know, significant conversation with someone, you remember exactly where you were, can remember the smell that was happening at the time. And, and I remember saying to Bart, he'd been, we'd been training together. It was about a month he'd been in Australia, been here a long time. And we were driving out of the army base and we'd had this particularly awesome day. Like, you know, some days the dogs are good. The handlers are good. Everything just went amazing. And there was this one dog there that Bart had said was probably one of the best dogs he'd seen in 20 years. And I'd worked that dog in the suit and had, I was genuinely in fear of my life for one of the first times in a long time (laughs) while working a dog and just one of those amazing days. And I I said to him, like, could you ever have imagined having a day like this and getting paid to do it? And, you know, he gets paid well, right. And getting paid that much to do a day like this. And he said to me, Pat, no one could have fucking seen this coming. Like when he started in dogs, the idea that someone would get paid as much as him, be traveling around the world, you know, he has never handled a military working dog. He was in the army, did his national service, but like to be brought in and respected so much by a bunch of guys who are legit killers in their own right and fucking good dog handlers with fucking good dogs and to stand there and be like, please give us your knowledge and we'll pay you handsomely for it. Because no one saw that coming. That's new. That's a totally new yep. thing. And people imagine that he has been doing that for the 30, 40 years that he's been training dogs. And he goes, you don't know that I used to fucking unload ships at the port of Antwerp, (laughs) hand carrying bags of grain off of a ship and doing it as fast (laughs) as I could because you got paid per bag. He goes, you imagine me, all these people seeing, imagine me just doing this and nothing but this and being coming out of the womb able to do this. They don't know about the hardship. They don't know about living in a tent on the side of the field because that was what was important. That's to happened time. to me. Exactly. Me and my right? wife, what, me and my wife, we lived in our car in a truck in a three week period before I bought this property on the side of a tracking field with 11 dogs in the car in a trailer in a tent. We didn't know yeah. where to fucking go. We didn't have nowhere to live before we got this house. We were living on the side of a tracking field. Yeah. I think and, we're like, where do we go? I guess let's go to the tracking field. Nobody will fucking bother us. You know. And that gets overlooked. And I think as well, to play devil's advocate and be in their shoes, and I'm one of these people. I'm one of them, right? You know, I've only been in this 10 years, training really seriously for 10 years, right? I'm one of them because I saw you in a video. I saw Bart in a video. I saw Ivan in a video and was able to tap the knowledge instantly. And I'm really lucky in that all the dog training knowledge I have, and I have a lot, I didn't have to fight for that. I had it fucking forced down my throat. Right? Like it, it was so, it's so abundantly available, but I think the sweet spot is digesting it and playing with it for a long time before you move on to the yes. next thing. Yep. And so, you know, I went to Michael Ellis' school. I only did his puppy development class, but then I, you know, raised a dog in that system. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time with Bart and I've got a dog raised completely under his tutelage. And and before that, I won't go through the whole list of it, but I put a lot of work into each system and really tried to really understand it. And then was like, okay, 
I have a robust understanding of this. I haven't been doing it for the 20 years that my mentor has, but that's because I didn't have to, I have that mentor. I have them guiding me through it and I don't have to make the same mistakes. They of course will let me make some mistakes. That's part of being a good mentor is letting me make mistakes and letting me learn from them rather than protecting me from the consequences of my actions. But I have been able to accelerate really, really quickly. And I think that there is a sweet spot there where you can have it all, but you can't have it right now. You gotta, right. you gotta right. take it slow and build it and really understand it before you move on and invest in a, a mentor and what they do fully and not be, yeah, Dave, I'm listening to you, but I'm also keeping half an eye on Ivan over there, right? Like it's, it's like, I, I've got to be in it. I make the mistakes that maybe you want me to make and, and do all the things that, you know, go through it and then go, okay, I think I've got that. Now I can move on and try and digest someone else's material or something like that. And it's when we're bouncing you know, like it's that attention deficit disorder that we all like mm. the modern age has of like, you know, right now while we're talking, you guys can't see this. I've got four screens on the go. <laughs> 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 like, I am surrounded by screens as we hear now. Only one, is, one is YouTube. One is something you're going to buy tomorrow. One is us. And one is exactly, your clients right? for that, tomorrow. The rest of them are off. I'm only talking to you guys. Cause I, I you know, I have that, capacity still. I can still hold a conversation. <laughs> Talking to people is one of the most important things. It's, it's what I love to do. But in real life, in my own downtime, I need four fucking screens to keep me completely yep. entertained because that's how we are these days. We're bouncing like thing to thing, thing to thing. And it's, so it's not necessarily these new people coming into the industry. It's not their fault that they're overwhelmed and that they're over investing into one part while also doing another and never really understanding it fully because that's the world we're in. Like I say, I can't get through a movie without also having another screen in my hand to look at stuff while that's going down. So it's tricky, but I think the three of us can at least agree that it's a long road and it's not instant and you got to put in the hours, you got to put in the work and you got to train the dogs. I mean, that's the, that's what it comes down to is you, when you get a new dog, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, in your private Facebook group, doesn't matter whether you go to Bart school, you do Ivan school, go to Michael school, any of them, you've got access to the world's best people, but it's still going to be time. There's, there's a time component to it. No matter who you've got tutoring you, no matter who's mentoring you, there's a time component to understanding that shit. I think that's a really good point. Just quickly jumping in there, Pat and Dave. I think that's a really good point. I think some of the most confused dog trainers I've ever seen in my life are people who have got too many monkeys or too many masters on their back. That can be dangerous too, right? Mm. So uh, just out of curiosity and not that age means anything, but how old are you, Glenn? I'm 51. Oh, you're 51. You're like me then. Okay. Mm. Pat, how old are you? 38. Okay. Glenn. Me and you are going to have another conversation podcast if we're still around with Pat in 10 to 15 years. <laughs> and we're going to interview him. And he's going to have a total different perspective on this, right? Like, mm. and it's now going to be like, he'll be talking about Bart and Dave and Michael and whoever in the past. Pat will have his own development of how he sees everything, right? And of course, you're going to pay your homage to me if I'm still alive and Michael and Bart, right? But you're going to view this and you're going to go, wow, 25 years or however long, right? And then it turns into something totally different. Mm. And it, it's really, it's very interesting. Like if we can remember to do this again in 10 years, we're going to do it. And me and Glenn are going to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in the calendar. I'll put it in the calendar now. But I feel like that that kind of is to an extent happening with me. There's, 
I spent a long time with Bart and, and have been really training under him for a long time. And I'm not Bart. I'm not by a long shot capable of what he is. Nobody is. But I understand the system pretty well and I've taught it. But there's bits yep. that I do and people will say, like, that's not within the system. And it's like, oh, is it or is it not? I'm not sure because I'm doing what feels right to me now. And I have a lot of influences, influences before, but and after. And, you know, you, ever, you make things your own. And I think you, you said that as well. Like you yep. digest yep. stuff and see what fits for you. And and I think sometimes for me, like it's uh, intellectual knowledge because that's where I can work hard. I have the skill set that I have in physically, like, you know, you see, you see some people train dogs and they're, it's just magic. You can see just the way they move their body. They're in tune with the dog, the way they can read a dog. And I will never have that. I'm pretty good, but I'm not that magic that you sometimes see with people. And so I put the work into understanding it. And exactly as you say, yeah, we did an episode a long time ago where I was talking about when I first started training pet dogs and had, you know, went out by myself and I remember standing at the door thinking, fuck, I hope this is a scenario I have seen before so that I don't know what to do. And then realized, oh, no, if I just understand the system completely, if I understand learning theory inside out, back to front and upside right. down, there's nothing that can stump me because I can understand. There's nothing it. that'll can, stump you. Yeah. You I may can, go, can, well, that's yeah, different, but I've got this. In, you know, there's a man, I'm, I'm sure you're, the, you're familiar with Bob Bailey. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So interesting story. Bob Bailey was a mentor of mine for years, many, many years. I, I always wanted to go to his chicken camps. I never had the time, you know, in my early years with the business and everything. And three years ago, maybe it was three. I get a fucking email from Bob Bailey. This is what it said. Dave, my name's Bob Bailey. You probably don't know of me, but I'm in the same business and I'm like, what the fuck, Bob? Of course I know who you are. He <laughs> says, I'm coming down through Texas. I'm now retired. I've heard a lot about what you've been doing in the last few years. And I'd like to sit down and meet you and chat with you. And, and, and I was like, holy shit, Bob Bailey wants to come down and visit with me. So he comes down. I'm nervous, whatever. He goes, let's go to dinner. We go to dinner and we have a conversation. And this always rings very strong in my head. He told me, Dave, the problem with a lot of dog trainers or people even in the companion pet dog world is they don't understand that applied learning is a technology. And if you don't understand the technology or what we would call theory, you're going to struggle. If you understand the technology of how applied theory works, then there's no problem you could walk into that will stump you. Mm -hmm. You may have not seen it before, but like you said, Pat, if you have the understanding of the technology or the laws of learning, okay, maybe I've not seen that before, but this is why that's happening. That's why that's happening. And you go through this whole thing, like where I'm at in my life, we could have a 20 hour long conversation and talk theory and everyone would be completely bored. And the reality is I don't even think about this stuff anymore when I'm training with my animal, it's just stuff happening, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that happens. I do that. That happens. I do that. That, And it just, and it's like, Oh, that didn't work. Let me try that. And it happens instantaneously, but it's because I know the laws of learning and applied behavior and that technology that Bob Bailey speaks of. 
Listening to you speaking about that, Dave, the book I brought up earlier before, um, Training Dogs and Manual by Colonel Conrad Most, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of people in our era, you're my age group, when we first sort of got into dog training, it was one of the books that probably passed through our hands at one stage. Yeah, it was one of my early books. Mm. It was back way in the early days. Yep. Yeah, I've got a copy here. I think Pat's read it. I gave it to him to read for a while. There's a quote in there that it's abbreviated, but this is where things started to make sense to me as far as learning theory goes, because it was really the first time that I kind of got a grasp of operant conditioning. Like in the early days, we were struggling with these concepts because they were new to us. Learning theory and behavioral theory, that was that was being injected into people who just had a feel for, for training dogs. But the quote is, and again, it's abbreviated, it's the sharp contrast between the agreeable and disagreeable which teaches a dog where its advantage lies. And when this is done correctly, the dog will learn very quickly. So when That's I first beautiful. Yeah, when I first heard that, and it's a quote that I give to all the student groups I, I work with, because when I first heard that, it was like lightning hit me in the head. And that's the first time I thought to myself, because we were largely compulsion when I first started. But, you know, fortunately, I was working with a good mentor who was, you know, looking to expand and always thinking, you know, like, let's explore adding something incrementally different to what we're doing. But that quote jump started me into thinking more about it and thinking there is a different way. As, as you said before, when you started learning and Pat Nolan, when he came on the show, talked about it when he had this epiphany, when he saw one of his birds flying back to him really quickly one day. And we all have that lightning strike moment. And that for me, that quote from the book, it was like God sang in my ears that day. Cause I thought to myself, now I'm capable of making differences on my own. I don't need someone to hold my hand and say, do step A, do step B, do step C. Then I thought to myself, I can make a difference. Like I can do different things with my own dog. And lo and behold, when I was trying it and I was starting to show the dog, this is where your advantage is, the dog would go, yeah, I get it. I don't want to do this because it's disadvantageous to me, but I do want to do these things because that's awesome and that leads to a better outcome in my life. That really shone a light on it for me. Yeah, that quote from that book, the book, the Conrad Mullis book, that's really like, I, I can't remember that far back. And you're just, I may go back and read it on the plane going to Canada on Saturday, but that really is one of those eye-opening things, mm. right? Like, Especially for its time, like the era that it came out. I mean, I think it was 1947 yep. or something like that. Like I've read reviews where people have said, oh, you know, this is a book that highlights the use of compulsion and people get all upset about it. But it was a book in 1947 when people didn't really care about dogs or want to know about, but he was, you know, training dogs to rescue people in or teaching people to become trainers, to teach dogs in wartime, to rescue soldiers and to carry ammunition across fields, you know, to, to sneak in through enemy lines and so forth. Like there was brilliance in that book and it expanded people's vision and understanding of, there is a better way to train dogs. We don't have to see them as a soulless, mindless beast that you just thrash them in an inch of their life. Like you can actually teach these dogs to understand you and you can have a line of communication. So it was a very important jumpstart for a lot of people because then it got people critically thinking like I can do other things with dogs. Like I can motivate them. And there is this intrinsic thought process that actually happens with inside the dog. It's not just beat the dog within an inch of its life and it will do what you do out of fear. I can't express how amazing that book was for such a long time ago. I'm sure you're familiar with the William Kohler, Bill Kohler, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So I, I have all of his books 
And even though it's very dated stuff from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, it's still valid. And this goes back to when Pat and I were talking about understanding the history of where everything went in dog training and understanding applied theory of not, I don't know if you guys follow my personal page. I don't put a lot of animal stuff. I put more mountain biking stuff on it, but I'm training a goat right now. One of my wife's goats, I'm involved in a a lot of TV commercials with some of our animals on the property and I'm having a goat. It's a baby goat. My wife uh, breeds Nigerian dwarf goats. I'm going to do nose work with it just for the hell of doing it. You know, I did a video of me teaching it to go to the table, target, Mm. click, come back and get some milk from the bottle. And it's like, people are fucking amazed. And I'm like, you guys, if you're amazed by that, that's what's missing from your dog training. Well said. They're like, I can't. And they're like, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, I'm going to do nose work. They're like, I can't believe. And I'm like, you guys, it is so easy, especially with this animal, because he don't have another world of reinforcement, really. He sits in the back, he eats leaves, and he comes out and he really likes the milk out of the bottle. He don't sit on the couch with me. He don't do shit. Well, he does sit on the couch with my wife occasionally, but it's so incredibly easy. I'm like, you're missing the, I'm not doing this for a novelty. I'm doing it to prepare him for if I get a call for a commercial for him, right. That I can make a couple little behaviors, but I'm going to do nose work with him just to show people how easily it can be done. And I just did a seminar recently in Arkansas where people were struggling getting their dog to target to a table, use indirect reward, click, have the dog come back for food. And I literally in two days had a goat doing it from 10 feet away. Mm. But people missed the whole thing. Like this is it. This is what you're missing out of your dog training. And it's really back to basics. If we want to say that it's the primal learning of how, how an animal learns, right? It goes back to understanding the technology that Bob Bailey speaks of or applied behavior. And like Pat said, he walked into a situation with a client. He's like, well, I'm worried if I've never seen it before. It's okay if you've never seen it before. Tell me to train something. Then give me five minutes and I'll train it, right? Give me a dumb behavior. I, I have to deal with that crap all the time on a movie set or a commercial, right? And they love to call me. The Wrangler knows to call me because I can train my dog to do something very quickly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't even know what the behavior is. And I show up and they're like, you got 10 minutes to teach your dog to jump in the pickup truck, put his hand on his paw, his hand, paw on the steering wheel and steer it. Well, I've got 10 minutes to train that. I have the knowledge how to train it. My dog knows how to learn. This is a really, really good discussion that we're having with the three of us right now. That's one of the interesting things. Uh, Sometimes people's dogs are well-trained in spite of their training, not Mm. because of it. And um, right. that process, like dogs are so good at understanding what we want and interpreting your gestures and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's where the value is in training the chickens and I don't know anyone else training goats, but training less connected animals because your operant process has to be fantastic. You have to learn, you have to learn complete primal animal training, right? I can't talk. Well, you can talk to the goat. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? Feel free to say whatever you want. 
Yeah, the chickens are especially less susceptible to your inference, right? Like when you signal right. to a chicken, like, go over there, chicken's like, well, I don't give a fuck what you're doing with your body language. Right. Whereas a dog cares very much. Mm-hmm. A dog is like trying to figure it out. And, and, and I think people can get kind of a little bit into that trap where the dog is the one figuring shit out. You're not really necessarily helping. And training a different species that is not so connected and and is not such a willing participant in the learning beyond the operant process. Like they find reinforcement and reinforcement in the true sense of the word in that it's just going to make what they just did more likely to happen. And that's all. They're not going to make them like And then your timing has to be perfect. You're going to find out about your timing. You're going to learn a lot about yourself. And that's what Bob Bailey did with those chicken camps early on. And I was do I was doing something like that. We call them the DKA chicken labs. I'm trying to retire now, by the way, just so you understand. <laughs> but I used to have a school and we'd have chicken lab. We'd have all the students, you know, an hour a day working with the chickens to really understand the point that I'm trying to make. And if you understand that, how that works, it should make the working with the, the dog gives us more tools than a chicken. Mm-hmm. We don't have many tools with a chicken. A dog is a pack animal. It is domesticated, which is very important, right? And it's a predator. So I have a lot of tools I can use. I can use positive punishment. I can use negative reinforcement. I can use a lot of things. And it views me as a leader. The goat don't know shit. It knows I've got the bottle and and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a truly operant process and and mistakes, mistiming, all that kind of stuff. The chicken or the goat isn't looking to fill in the gaps for you as readily right. as a dog is. Whereas a dog's like, you idiot, I know you got that wrong. And we'll try and you can infer your intent to a dog, which you can't do to those right. other animals, especially exactly. wild animals. Yeah. And also the compulsion piece, I think. Like there's a lot of animals, you put compulsion on them, they're like, hey, I, you are not the top of the fucking food chain in this situation, right? right? Yeah. And I think that. That can, not that I've trained exotic animals, but I've trained a lot of dogs that don't take well to being poorly corrected or or having a lot of pressure put on them. And they're the best dogs, especially in the working roles and the police and military type stuff. The dogs that say to you very clearly, I will work with you and for you, but you are not going to fuck me around. Like I am doing this because I want to. And if you give me an unfair correction, you'll know about it, right? And they're they're the dogs that I think, Certainly for me, honed my skills and put them oh, to that, I was just about to say, those dogs taught me a lot about yeah. where the line is, right? Not all my dogs have been like a complete monster, but I've been known to have some very, very strong dogs. And of course, in the end, they knew they had to comply to what I wanted, but it wasn't always, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm, it was like, we're going to meet you halfway, right? Making a mistake is different than giving me the finger. Totally two different things, right? So I had to figure out how to break through to these dogs and realize if it's a working dog, they're a crack at it. I've got the food. I've got the toy. Let me be smart here. I've got what you want. Let me just figure, let, let me even let you be in charge for a moment. And what you learn and what you'll learn in 10 years from now, Pat, Um, If you haven't, you may have learned it already is the stronger the dog, the more you're just his big brother. Mm. Yeah. You can't be on the real strong ones. You can't be, I'm the king. I'm just your big brother. And we're going to be right kind of here. And on the field, you're going to do what I tell you to do. But off the field, I'm not going to jump your ass for everything. 
This don't bite everybody. Off the field, my strong dogs don't have a lot of rules. Come here yeah. and don't bite nobody. That's all that you fucking got to do, right? Mm. <laughs> I live similarly with my own dog. Mate, I was working for a police department there in the States a long time ago. There's a funny moment where the master, a guy was having a lot of trouble with his dog and the master trainer, and I'm, you know, I do my little inverted. <laughs> master yes, trainer. He yells at the guy like, show that fucking dog who's boss. And I was there just as a helper. I wasn't there to be the coach or anything. I, and I was like, no, this is crossing a line into where I need to interject. This is going to be bad. <laughs> I was like, stop, stop, stop. And they look at me like, what the fuck have you got to say, weird Australian guy? And I was like, you are not about to show that dog who's boss. That dog is about to fucking show you who's boss. Like right. he, and you got to get up at some point. You got to get up. <laughs> I was like, man, unless you're prepared to pull that gun, you are not right. going to beat that dog because he is tougher <laughs> than you. He is stronger than you, and he is more capable than you. You have to fucking cooperate with that dog because you are right. not the boss. He is the boss, and he wants to do the biting. You have to find a way to do that together as a team, not That's as great. a the boss. You're the fucking. You're the dog. You do what you're told because you are about to find out. You are not the boss. <laughs> I did a video a year or two ago about the truth of alpha rolling, right? We all know that that it, it's kind of a myth. But the funny thing about the alpha rolling is people forget, hey, you can put the dog on his back, but you still have to get up at some point, right? Yeah. And yeah. that can be very dangerous when you get up at that point. Unless you're going to put the gun to his head. <laughs> I was listening to you guys talking about that and it gave me flashbacks to when I was a kid. When I started getting really involved in this, I was in my early to mid 20s. Predominantly, the work that I was doing was we were buying or getting gifted to us problematic shepherds and rotties. Mm-hmm. Our business was to rehabilitate them and then on sell them to law enforcement agencies, private and government. At that point in time, I was predominantly working on my own. We had a kennel, we had about you know, 15 kennels there. So if we could pair males and females up, we'd have anywhere up to about 30 dogs down in the kennels. Being on my own and actually taking the ute out and going and getting these dogs, ute is a pickup in America. So I'd take the, the ute out, it had a canopy over it, and I had four tie-offs in a corner. So sometimes I'd come back with three or four dogs at a time. I had no relationship with these dogs whatsoever. And these are dogs that are already probably bitten or mauled people, which is why we were getting the dogs. I had to construct a device to actually get the dogs off the car, get them into the kennel, and then leave them there for a period of time. Now, when I say leave them there, it doesn't mean that their welfare wasn't in check because they were were living in nice kennels. I'd always find a way to pick up after them, keep their water up, and keep their food going and so forth. But, you know, like I had to be very careful of some of these dogs because they were serious and they were angry and they were very confused about the relationship with people because sometimes their relationship was – you know, they completely dominated and destroyed the family they were working with, or sometimes they had an overbearing handler that was putting the hurts on them. So these dogs had mistrust of human beings already. One of the things I learned, which came from what you were talking about, Dave, is that some of these dogs, you just could not tell them that you were the boss and that you were going to have it all over. Yeah. Some of these dogs, you just had to exercise a lot of patience of. And again, this goes back to our, you can't have it all right now because these dogs just won't let you and they're not forgiving enough to allow that to happen. So there were times where, and I remember one dog in particular, and this was one of the dogs that I had a a large struggle with, but I learned so much from him. 
is that it took me three weeks to have any sort of relationship with this dog where literally I'd take his food and I'd walk towards the cage and he'd, he'd hit the cage and be very aggressive to me. So I'd let that dog see me turn around and walk away with the food. So I didn't yell at him. I didn't scold him. I didn't do anything. I just walked away with the food. So I tried a bit later when he was a bit more hungrier. I walked towards the fence. He'd hit the fence again. Again, I'd just turn around and walk away with the food. I think this went on for a couple of days. He wasn't really eating a lot of food at this point in time. So one day I went in there and his expression changed. Like it went from really aggressive hitting the cage to like he was staring at the food. So I walked up. He was interested in the food. I opened the pen door, slid it in and walked away. At that point in time, his attitude changed with me from there on in. I had to let him out of the cage. You know, I had to actually, or his pen, I had to let him out and let him exercise in the field. So it came a day where I could see him excited about me coming up. I'd conditioned him to understand that I wasn't a bad guy and I was his big brother, so to speak, to use your phrase. I opened the cage and I did it safely. I opened it so I could just let him run out and run out onto the field. And as he was out there, I hadn't fed him at that point in time, but he went out, he ran right out into the field. It was probably half an acre, so it was a big property. And people used to say to me, weren't you afraid that he would try and attack you or he wouldn't come back? And I said, no, because he was hungry and he, he needed to come back because his food right. was inside the pen. But I just went about my business and like I was mowing lawns while he was running around and, you know, he stopped and stared at me a few times and there was a, a couple of uncomfortable exchanges, but I never put any pressure on him. I never asked anything of him. I never directed him to do anything. I just let him be a dog and let him run out in the field. This went on for probably about an hour and a half. And at some stage, you know, like I could see that he was he was done. He'd done what he needed to do outside. I walked back to the pen. I opened the door. He walked in there, went inside, ate his food. I closed the door and left it at that. Fast forwarding, it probably took me another week on top of that. But he was out in the field one day and he walked over to me. And that was the first day that he actually put his head under my hand to say, I want to make contact with you. The good thing was, is I was learning on the go here. I thought if I rush this dog, I'm here by myself. He's going to fuck me up. This is going to be a really bad move on my behalf. So I just let this all happen organically. I allowed the dog just to, you know, to learn with me while I was learning from him. And he came over and he put his head under my hand. He was a big Rottweiler. He was a big, big son of a bitch. And he put his head under my hand. He just pushed it up like to say, I want to be loved. I gave him a quick pat and I walked away and he said, no, no, I want more. Like, I, I want to be with you, you know, like I, I want you and me to have a connection. So I allowed him to keep nudging me and shaping his way into me. And he came over and I patted and then, you know, like he went off and found a stick and he brought it back and he dropped it at my feet. So, you know, we picked up the stick and that's where this whole bonding came. But I learned so much about that dog. And I also learned a hell of a lot about myself, you know, like what I had to go through with him. Some of the other dogs were far more forgiving and so easy to come across. This dog just wasn't, you know, he had such mistrust for people and he was so aggressive towards people. But then he started to see that I'm the gateway to all these wonderful things happening. So as I started to bring people in to help be, you know, to work as decoys for him, he realized, oh, this is hell fun. You know, like this guy is opening up all these doors and all these opportunities. And he just became, you know, from such a dog that had, I don't know what his background was because I really didn't get a lot of information about it sometimes. It was just, yeah, take the dog and go. But for a dog that was so aggressive but also so disappointed with human contact, I still remember him to this day. I named him Kappa. He was just a a fun dog to be around. And, you know, like his bite work was just amazing for such a big Roddy. He was so powerful and so amazing to watch him. And he really turned a corner for me. And again, you know, that was one of those 
memorable things that I'll never forget for the rest of my life is the experience I had with that dog because he made me such a more patient trainer. I had to be patient with him. I had to wait for him to come across and it had to be on his terms. Like a lot of times in that, especially back then, a lot of the education you would get is people would say, the dog has to be trained on your terms. You have to right, do you this. Right, you have to and, dominate him and stuff. Right. Dominating this dog would be like what Pat was talking about before and what we, right. what we hear about with mammal trainers, like sea mammal trainers, where you dominate those and they'll just squash you against the side of a tank or bite you in half. You've been around for a while. Pat's been around for a while. I've been around for a while. We've all heard about these trainers who have pushed a, a, a male shepherd, a roddy, or a pit bull too hard, and you come out in the ICU or the emergency section of the hospital. These dogs school you up very, very diligently um, yep. because you've pushed yourself way too hard on them. This is a beautiful story, by the way, Glenn. Beautiful Thank story. Thank you. Don't you wish it was documented on video? We never <laughs> have the opportunity to do it. Exactly. But we're like... If we could document day to day on video and your words were like organic, I want to let it happen organically. That's how it has to happen. Right. There was a a very old German, a very good trainer, very good friend of mine. Elmar Manis is not that old, but he's a retired SB judge, IPO judge. And I gained a lot of knowledge from him. And he's very well known for handling very strong dogs. And he'd come to the States once or twice a year. I've spent a lot of time with him. He's judged me in trials. And sometimes in the seminars, a handler would bring a dog out to work. And they, they'd say, he's very aggressive. Be careful, be careful. And, he's like, and Elmar would say, why would he want to bite me? I have no intentions on doing anything to him, right? And just like those people said to you, aren't you afraid out in the field? I mean, maybe you were thinking, oh, my God, what if you were not doing anything? You said you were mowing the lawn. Mm. If the dog was clear, if he was clear in the head, he's not going to fucking bite you. You weren't pressing him. You weren't asking anything of him. You were just organically being with him. Mm. And that's how you deal with a strong dog like that. Mm. And then. Like if, if you were, if you kept that, I've had many dogs like this and I've had to let the relationship develop where then maybe one year into the relationship, I could correct the dog and he would accept it. But had I tried that stuff in the first month, I'd be in the hospital guaranteed yeah. and it wouldn't be good. But I like your word organically. You have to let it happen organically. Yeah. I think the best advice on those crazy powerful dogs is from Buck Brenneman in that movie, Buck, where mm. he says, I don't try to make friends with the horse. Yeah. I just make myself a gate that the horse has to go through. And I think That's that, it. yeah, I think that a lot of the times with those super powerful dogs and people try and force a relationship, you can force it by someone and has to be subordinate to someone else. And, and in some instances, right. people crush the dog successfully. And then the dog probably wasn't as powerful as they thought anyway, but you know, then it's, that's not pretty. And sometimes the dog really does take control. And you see this in pet households and stuff like that, where right. the people are subordinate to the dog. And neither one of those is a healthy relationship. You want a, like a cooperative, mutually beneficial relationship with the dog, any dog, really. It doesn't matter if it's the powerful killers or a timid little house dog. It doesn't matter. You want a cooperative relationship. I always use the comment or the phrase, and by the way, I have a beagle a little beagle. That's really my favorite dog I own for all practical purpose is untrained. She maybe comes when called sometimes, but she's not really trained. 
And I always say, if you can coincide with an untrained dog, you're truly a dog man. At some point in my life, I'll be done with sport. I'll be done with all this nonsense. And I'll have a shepherd and it'll, or a Malinois. It'll probably be a pretty strong. And he won't be trained. And we'll coincide. When you can coincide with an untrained animal, you're truly a dog man. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something to that for sure. Um, that's one of the things I like about my Springer. I certainly couldn't say she's untrained. She's very fucking highly trained. But um, <laughs> I haven't. I don't use any of that training. I haven't in a long time. Right. I have a video series on how to raise a puppy and she's the one. So like she got a lot of, she has very flashy obedience, but I haven't done that in a long time. And um, well, you don't use it. You don't ask her to do anything. <laughs> no. And, and I love her wildness. I love, like, that's yeah, one of the things I, I love that her the most is that she's a psychopath. She runs, she never stops. She's always running around. Yeah. And while I'm training my Mal in all the videos, people always comment about it. You can just see her doing zoomies in the background. <laughs> and afterwards, I play with her a little bit, but I don't even know where she is half the time. Like when I go back to the car with him, she's there waiting. Like she's always under my feet. She's always nearby. And we just kind of live, she, you know, she's right at my feet right now. We live this kind of, in tune with each other lifestyle and like like i said i certainly won't say she's got no training she's got a shit ton of training but it's sort of we've found a homeostasis where we just kind of live together really really nicely which i i really enjoy about her and i almost don't like to do i don't like to show any of the training a lot of people have asked you know show what she can do because they remember back from when she was my showing off dog and i'm like oh, right i don't want to i like her just being wild she's happy i'm happy let's just let everybody be just before we wind up, I think that's one of the things that I really liked about Pat when I first met him was that he didn't front up with just another working dog and say, hey, look at me, I'm a working dog guy. Like I first met him, he had this little spring of spaniel running around. They're things that I pay attention to because, don't get me wrong, I admire people who do magnificent things with working dogs. But when you see it over 30 years, you're seeing, you know, like another up and come up with another working dog, another one, another one, another one. And you think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. I, you know, I appreciate you. You're doing good work. But when you can see somebody do it with a dog that's not in line with that type of work, like you know that they've gone through struggle to get the dog there, like that's when I'm interested in people. And I was interested in Pat because I thought, fuck, man, he's got really good control of a little spring of spaniel where usually I'm watching them running their ass off in a field and, you know, like they'll come back and they'll <laughs> check in. But, you know, like he had a healing between his legs and focusing and, you know, going to markers. And I thought he's got true talent. He's learned to communicate with a dog and she wasn't afraid of him. And, you know, she still had a wild spirit and everything about it. And I, I kind of thought, yeah, he's he's got something, you know, like he's got that X factor of of somebody in the animal world that has truly learned the patience of working with a difficult dog. And I don't say this disrespectfully, but, well, I'm not going to say it because it, it probably will come off disrespecty, but I've got French bulldogs and, and to a degree they're potatoes. But they're still they're, they're still coachable, right? I, I taught one of them who's got a, a messed up back and she would have still been able to do the skill, but I taught one of them how to climb up on a on a freestanding medicine ball and then stand on their back legs on top of that. And I filmed all that so I could coach people how to do it if they cared to. And then I could see Pat doing this with his little Springer Spaniel. And there's other people, there's amazing people around the world. And as you referenced before, there's people like Mike Suttle, for argument's sake, who is a, yep. a, a known working dog guy, but then runs chicken camps and he gets kids around there yep. so he can teach kids the beauty of market timing and everything like that. Like there are fucking skilled people out there in the world who are just amazing. And I don't say that with disrespect about the working dog people as well, because I do dig you guys and I really 
I think some of you are amazing. And, and Dave, you, you said it before, and I'm totally on board with that. You're an artist, like anybody who can relate to their dog like that and have their dogs not only do all these stitch together YouTube clips, but they can actually do it in a full routine. And you can see this person like dog dancers, they can dance with their dog in their own way. And you can see the whole routine that they've chained it together in such beautiful choreography that when you watch it, you just think, Oh my God, this person has really, they've really taken the time to dissect this and completely understand it. Their mind is synced with the mind of the dog. Like the two of them have this beautiful art form together and it is so amazing to watch. And I am in complete awe and appreciation of people around the world who do this. And I said it before on the, on the show, one of the other earlier episodes that sometimes I get bored of watching a healing video of a dog just healing along, <laughs> you know, like you, you see 30 years of dogs healing and you go, Oh yeah, but then somebody will mix yep. it up. And Pat did it again the other day. Like he had Remy doing four or five flips between his legs, left and right, healing backwards, all in succession. And I like that sort of stuff. Like I think that's creative, you know, that's showing that your body, bucking the trend and you really are going out on a limb to do your own thing and create your own signature instead of just being, I created this word the other day, instead of just being one of these people in the dog world, who's just an ass holistic person, you know, like they're a whole ass just stealing (laughs) other people's work and, you know, like not doing anything really exciting. They're just doing the same thing over and over again. Whereas I really do like, I love the creativity. I love the enthusiasm because I think that that helps people remain inspired not just be a template of what you're doing, but also see possibility that there is so much more to it, that you can be creative and you do have scope to do so many different things and reach out further, you know, like be a pioneer, cut your own path. When I leave this earth, I hope I leave that behind. I want people to explore, Mm. right? I always say my training is multidimensional. It's not one-dimensional. Explore, try things, you know, use the rules of applied theory and the laws of learning, but go out there, right? Go out way on a limb. If it don't work, fuck it. It don't work, right? But try. Leave a legacy. Always try, you know? That's what I want people to learn anyway. (laughs) Mate, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. It's been a bit of a fuck around getting going, but we did it. And there were so many things I had intended to sort of steer this conversation and ask you about certain aspects of your career, but we just had fun talking bullshit about dogs. And so that, that was great. We'll have to get you on again. And I want to hear more about uh, your trajectory. I had all these plans. I wanted to talk to you about what it was like with an early dog, but I feel like we've had fun and I think people will have gotten um, some good info from it. I'm not going to lie. This is one of my favorite conversations. I told my wife, well, actually yesterday, I'm like, Oh, fuck, man. I got to do another interview podcast. I really don't like doing these (laughs) so much, but this was actually really, I swear to God, really enjoyable. And we should, I can already tell you, people are going to go, let's do it again with with Dave and Pat and Glenn. So let's plan on it, you know, in, in a couple months or whatever. This was a great conversation. And I know, Pat, you may have had like that, 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 but it went off that way. But that's how yeah. dog training is too, right? Exactly. So yeah. fuck it. Exactly. No matter. <laughs> Absolutely. Perfect. Hey, mate, tell us where can people find you online? I know you've got a lot of content online and that, as you said, that's how you make your living. So steer people towards it for us. It's pretty simple, man. If you go to DaveCroyer.com, I have a website, DKA TV. Um, there's a free seven day subscription if you want to check it out. I'm totally cool with people. I say, listen, check it out, man. 
subscribe. If you don't like it in six days, cancel it. I'm fine with that. I'm totally cool with that. And there's tons of other free videos on the site, tons of free videos of my competitions. We have my free video Friday videos, which is kind of a cult following in the IPO world. We have dog sport rules, books from everything from PSA, dock diving, IGP, everything I'm involved with. Just a cool site to check out. You know, like I said, check it out. Seven day free trial. If you don't like Perfect. it, cancel them six. I won't hate you. <laughs> awesome. From many people who are in there, it is often, I see online, often referred to as incredible value for money. Mm. The amount of content that goes into their high quality content. So everybody should check out Dave's stuff. Say the website one more time. DaveCroyer.com. D-A-V-E-K-R-O-Y-E-R.com. Awesome. Again, mate, thanks so much for doing it. Absolutely. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. I finally got that IGP doco out. Glenn, did you see? I Have did. you watched it? It's amazing. I'm really happy with it. Did a I great finally job got it. it released. It was a lot of work, so you better fucking enjoy it. If you if you don't, <laughs> tell me that you did. <laughs> the other way you can support the show is Teespring. Jump into Teespring and get yourself some cool merch, wall tapestries, underpants probably. We sell pretty much everything with our logo on it. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump into our Facebook group. It's the Canine Paradigm Discussion Group. There's loads of information in there. You can group source information from loads of people. Search, ask questions. Be nice. I'm in there on it. You I'm are, yeah. I've seen you give people some sweet answers to stuff, which we appreciate very much. I really like the fact that there's a lot of diverse people in there. And the only rule that we really have is to give information with kindness. And so you can have diverse opinions. People in there can say, I don't like training with e-collars. And people can say, I exclusively train with e-collars. That's fine. We can coexist together. So long as your motivation for giving advice or giving an opinion is with kindness and you think that it's a good thing to do, not because Amen. fuck you. That's why. Yep. That's that's our only rule in the group. Everybody uh, loves so everybody. Some, yeah, ELE. So jump in there, get some sweet information. And if you want to get in contact with me and Glenn, if you want to uh, shoot a rocket up our ass or tell us to go fuck ourselves or tell us we're doing a good job, <laughs> you can send us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye. All right, guys. Oh, oh, oh.